I'm Kari Rowe, and you're listening to the Foreign Saints Podcast, a pulse check for those of us that die daily. And I'm excited to say that we are beginning a walk through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, verse by verse, line by line, to really hear uh, what Jesus has to say uh, to us out of this Gospel. Got to give a shout out to my friend, my boy Julian. Uh, you know who you are. Um, I was really consider. I've been thinking over for a few weeks and months now about you know, what verse by verse teaching I wanted to do on this podcast. And I have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, They're really near and dear to me. And I really wanted to go through them uh, on their own, but I wasn't sure about it. And, you know, there were other things going on in life. And literally, I was thinking about it, you know, should I do the entire book of Matthew? Should I just do the Sermon on the Mount? And, my friend Julian texts me literally asking me if I was doing one of the four Gospels, um, one of the other Gospels, because I've done Luke before on uh, on my YouTube channel that, uh, that, I used to, that I used to be really heavy on. And he was asking if I was going to do one of the other three Gospels. And I was like, okay, God, um, I'm not one. I'm not a Christian that tends to look for signs, but I also try not to ignore super obvious ones. Um so here we are. We're going to do the entirety of Matthew, all 28 chapters. And from the outset, before we get into it, I want to um, state the three goals that I want to achieve, right? What is my purpose in reading Matthew? What I hope uh, will be your purpose in listening, um, you know, to me go through Matthew, right? So three points. The first purpose for reading Matthew is to know Jesus better. And no matter what book of the Bible I ever do on this podcast, that will always be the first point, to know Jesus better, because that is the purpose of the scriptures, right? To be introduced to God, to know God better, um, you know, just, just to see him more clearly, who Jesus really is what Jesus really taught. Second purpose for going through the Gospel of Matthew, right, is the purpose of this podcast, if you've read the description, right, to deconstruct myths and falsehoods about Christianity and about being a Christian. There's a lot of false thought about what it looks like to be a Christian, about what it means to be a Christian. I hope to smash that to dust as we move through Matthew. And another way of saying it would be to understand the kingdom call of Christ better. And that one will make more sense as we move through um, the Gospel of Matthew. And third point, uh, this one you might not have expected, but to see the continuity of Scripture through the Old and New Testaments. In other words, Christophany, right? So what do I mean when I see to see the continuity of Scripture across the Old and New Testaments, right? Lately, um, in my own personal conversations with people, I have repeatedly come across this notion that it doesn't make any sense to look at the Bible as the Word of God because, you know, who knows what biases influence the writers. And, you know, it's just so obvious that this book is just a patchwork collection of some good things and some bad things. And to that, I say nonsense, right? God inspired this book. God carried the authors along as they were writing, 
And Jesus is the consistent theme and message from the start of Genesis to the end of the Revelation, right? And I intend to show that as we move through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, right? If you're at all familiar with the Gospels, you've definitely come across a phrase in some of the four Gospels where it says, Jesus fulfilled whatever, right? And so he fulfilled the scriptures, right? We're going to talk about that. What does the New Testament mean when it says fulfill? Does it just mean fulfill as in, you know, your classic, oh, the prophecy, you know, prophesied the one and he, you know, fulfills it. Is that what it means or is there more than that? We'll get into questions. Uh, we'll get into questions like that, right? Um, and so I kind of want to start with that point first, right? <clears throat> What is a Christophany? What what is Christophany? Right? This is you, you don't have to remember the word Christophany, all right? But the concept is one that I hope to have baked into your brains by the time we've gotten through Matthew. I want you to be good at recognizing Jesus in the text, even in places where uh it doesn't seem to make sense, right? In the Gospel of John when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, right? And the Pharisees, uh, you know, and the Pharisees challenge him. What Jesus says to the Pharisees is, you think that you get life in the text itself, in the text of the word of God itself. But really, this text just talks about me. And yet you won't come to me so that I would really give you life, right? Jesus said that Moses wrote about him in the Gospel of John, right? He said, if you'd believe Moses, you would have believed me because Moses wrote about me. Now, which books of the Bible did Moses write? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Moses was the main contributor to those five books. So Jesus's claim is that in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it was talking about him, right? And if you're like most of us, you know, you've read, <laughs> you've read those books and you certainly see one or two things maybe that reminds you of Jesus, but certainly not enough to where you might say that those first five books were about Jesus. Well, it just means that you missed a lot, right? And hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll be able to give you the tools in this ongoing walk through Matthew, um, you know, to, to see the things that you've been missing up until now, right? So, again, to my question, what is a Christophany, right? Simple definition, seeing Jesus in the Bible. Because, again, that is the point of the Bible, to be introduced to Jesus, to know Jesus better, right? But there is a more uh, in-depth definition that could be given. And like my mom always says, I'm really good at going down the rabbit hole. So let's go down the rabbit hole of Christ and see what we come back with, right? So seeing Jesus in the Bible is a good, simple Sunday school definition of a Christophany. Full definition, at least for me, right? Seeing him here, seeing him there, seeing him everywhere. Seeing Jesus in the symbols, the Ark of Noah, the rock in the wilderness, the tabernacle, the high priest, the temple, the king of Israel, right? All of those and more are symbols that are pointing 
to Jesus, that paint pictures of Jesus and what he'll do, what he'll be like, right? How is the Ark of Noah a picture of Jesus Christ? That's another episode. How is the Rock of the Wilderness a picture of Christ? Another episode. On and on and on. But I promise you they all are, right? And beyond. Seeing Jesus in the circumstances. Seeing Jesus in the historical figures in the Bible. Seeing Jesus in the stories of the Bible. Seeing Jesus in the literary styles in the Bible. Jesus is the histories of Israel reenacted in a single human life. Jesus is the law of God incarnate. Jesus is the Proverbs come to life. The prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the word of God made flesh, right? And that brings me to another word, right? That some of the more, uh, some of the theology heads might definitely know, typology, right? This is called typology. Um, and the Bible greenlights typology. And what would I say typology is? My definition that I think uh, would help you understand, right? Typology is the search for divinely inspired metaphors and pictures of Christ in the Bible, right? Now, I know that, um, you know, uh, people that take their Christianity seriously don't like the word metaphor because you're used to hearing the word metaphor thrown at you by people who don't take the Bible seriously. And so what they'll say is, oh, it's just a metaphor. You know, they're just metaphors. They're just allegories, you know, so you don't have to take it seriously. That's not what I'm saying, right? There's a difference between finding an allegory in a work where the author didn't intend you to find allegory, right? Good example that I heard from a pastor on YouTube, right? Mike Winger, you should check him out. But a good example that I heard from him was the Lord of the Rings, right? There's a lot of parallels to the world wars in Lord of the Rings, but the author has gone on record to say any parallel you find to the world wars is completely accidental, not intentional. I did not write Lord of the Rings to be a parallel um, to the world wars, right? But the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis has gone on record saying that he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia purposely to create allegorical pictures of Jesus, right? And so if you're reading the Chronicles of Narnia and you're like, huh, that reminds me of Jesus. Well, chances are it was probably, it probably reminds you of Jesus because that was the author's intention. Right, it was C.S. Lewis's intention for you to see uh, Jesus in Aslan, for you to, you know, like that. That was the intention, right? And so, the Bible green, like God in the Bible, green lights. Hey, search for allegories about Jesus, because I, God, the true author of this text, of this book, the true author of all 66 of these books, I have placed metaphors and allegories and pictures of Jesus all throughout the text, right? I'm using the lives of real people in real history to paint pictures of my son Jesus to come, right? So that when he comes, you'll be able to recognize him and his work all the easier. So that as you're trying to live out a life of faithfulness to Christ, you can look back at the Old Testament and see pictures of spiritual realities that might be a bit difficult for you in your current life circumstance to fully 
um, to fully imagine, to fully grasp, right? Right? The Bible green lights this. You are cleared by God. You are encouraged by God to search the scriptures for his divinely inspired metaphors and pictures of Christ in the Bible. What are my proof texts? And don't worry, we will get into Matthew, but there is a lot of typology in Matthew. And so, you know, I'd like to at least make my case biblically that I have license to look for this typology as we go, just so that way we all know that we're being responsible with the text. Because you can be you can be irresponsible with the text of scripture. You can take anything you want out of context and make it say anything that you want to make it say. You know, I just don't tend to have serious conversations with those kinds of people because they're not handling the text honestly, right? And I would imagine, and it's my opinion that deep down people that are handling the text dishonestly usually know. It's one thing to be confused about what the scripture says. It's another one to purposely ignore uh, what's written on the page um, just because you don't like it or just because it makes you squeamish or because it goes against your cultural sensitivities or whatever. Right. But uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, right? The book of Colossians, chapter two, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes this. Whoops, hopefully I didn't mess you up, headphone users. Uh, Paul writes this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right? The substance belongs to Christ. Consider what Paul is saying, right? He says, food and drink. Right. And what, what kind of food and drink is he talking about? Well, read Colossians and you'll see he's talking about like food and drink uh, regulations. Right. The dietary laws of the Old Testament. Right. Food and drink festivals. Right. Where are festivals really talked about in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. Right. <clears throat> New moon stuff and Sabbath. Right. Don't let anyone that calls themselves a Christian judge you according to those things, right? Dietary laws, um, Jewish festivals, uh, new moon, probably calendar stuff, um, and the Sabbath. Why? Because Paul says all four of those things are just a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, right? So what does Paul mean when he says, when he says a shadow, right? Well, consider a shadow, right? Right? When you're casting a shadow, what is it? It's an outline of you, right? It's an outline of you. It's not actually you. Like you are different than your shadow, but your shadow is an accurate tracing of you, right? So when Paul is saying that these things are just, that these things in the Old Testament are just a shadow of things to come, right? But the substance belongs to Christ. He's saying that Jesus Christ is that thing that came and that all of those things, right? The dietary restrictions, the festivals of Leviticus, the calendar even, and the Sabbath, they are all shadows of Jesus, right? That paint a picture of some aspect of who Jesus is and what he does, right? If you want another, you want another verse uh, on this concept, that's perfectly fine. Uh, we go to Hebrews uh, chapter 10, 
I'm assuming I can find it. I got my Bible in front of me right now. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. And this is what Hebrews says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near, right? Leave aside the sacrifices bit and just think about that first half, right? The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities right? Consider that, right? The Old Testament law contains just a shadow of the good things to come, but not their true form, right? Like I said, you are different than your shadow. Your shadow is not your true form, but it is an outline of your true form, right? The Old Testament law is not Jesus himself, but it is an outline of of the true realities of Jesus himself, right? And so as we go through the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is going to show us how Jesus is the true form of all of these different shadows and types in the Old Testament and in the Old Testament law. It's really exciting stuff, and it's one of my favorite ways to study the Bible because you don't just see God's inspiration of the text, right? Because people will say to me all the time, uh, Kari, you can't trust these writings from these unintelligent, uh, you know, from these unintelligent, uncivilized goat herders. Um, and, you know, my first reaction to that is um, that's uh, <laughs> uh, that's discriminatory in a, in a lot of ways. Um, again, not saying that people back in ancient times are walking around with cell phones. But if you really think that people back in ancient times didn't have your same capacity for rational thinking that you do, um, yeah, that's a that's a level of that's a level of arrogance that I'm I don't necessarily know if I have the power <laughs> to show you uh, why that's arrogant, right? I it is arrogant. I just don't know if anything I say would would actually convince. Uh, someone of that. But more to the point, even if the people that wrote the Bible were a bunch of ignoramuses, then that actually makes the case stronger that God wrote the book, because the book you're looking at very clearly, even if you disagree with it, was not written by dumb people, right? Right? The Bible stitched together over, over a thousand years by people will say of 40 authors. I think it was way more than 40 authors. If you include all the editors and people that had a hand in compiling, um, the book, right? Like the letter to like the book of Romans, for example, people say, you know, well, Paul wrote it. Yes. But if you actually read Romans carefully, it literally says that this other guy Sosthenes was the dude actually physically writing it. So Paul is dictating the words and Sosthenes was writing it down as his scribe, right? So really, it's more like two people wrote it. And you can do that for quite a few of the books in the Old Testament, right? Like the ending of Deuteronomy was very clearly not written by Moses. That was a later editor, right? So you had all sorts of unnamed people that had a hand in this, but the finished product is the finished product is one cohesive work with one theme, Jesus Christ, um, stretched through the text, right? 
Now you might say, well, Kari, you're just inserting Jesus into passages where he doesn't belong. Yeah. The problem with that is that other people try that. <laughs> like uh, other people try that, right? Like the Mormons try that. I have heard extensively how uh, Muslims believe that Muhammad is prophesied in texts like, uh, like middling portions of Isaiah. And it, it just doesn't work. Like Jesus is the only person who can step into the prophecies, into the themes of the Old Testament and say, this is about me. And it actually works. And if Jesus was just a man, right? If Jesus was just a man, if Jesus wasn't actually God also, then that shouldn't work as perfectly as it does. The fact that it does is evidence that there is a divine mind that was inspiring the text and moving history uh, in a certain direction for Jesus' sake this whole time, aka God. Whew. And my favorite verse um, my, my favorite verse when it comes to justifying looking for typology in, uh, in the Old Testament is in Romans uh, chapter 3, actually, verse 21. What does Paul write? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That word manifested just means made known. So the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law, separate from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All right. That is a strong statement from uh, from the apostle. Right. Uh, that, that is a very, uh, it's a very strong statement. That the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Right. And what does that phrase bear witness mean? It just means to speak accurately about. Right. You guys listening, I'd imagine most of you know, you know, uh, what is it, the ninth of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness about your neighbor, right? Bearing false witness means to speak falsely about something, right? So bearing witness just means to speak truthfully about something. So when Paul says that the law and the prophets bear witness, he's saying the law and the prophets speak truthfully to it. Okay, Paul, well, what are they speaking truthfully to? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The law is a reference to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, where you find pretty much all the laws, right? And the prophets would be the rest of the Old Testament, right? So the entire Old Testament speaks truthfully to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, right? Which means you have a green light to reread the Old Testament if you didn't catch it the first time because it talks about it. The Old Testament talks about righteousness by faith. And if you want to head start on that, read the book of Romans, right? Paul argues that throughout the entirety of the letter that the Old Testament always talked about righteousness through faith, not by works of the law not by works of the law, right? So with that, uh, with that being said, um, we're going to take a quick little uh, intermission here, and then we will be back to jump into Matthew uh, chapter 1. Um, so enjoy, uh, enjoy the break, enjoy the intermission, and we'll be back with the show. Israel, including the West Bank and Gaza. 
The decades-long conflict between the Israeli government and Palestinian authorities over the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the land, and the status of Palestinian refugees remains among the world's most volatile issues, made even more volatile by recent uh, developments and the attacks, uh, you know, and the attack in Israel recently. During this conflict, both Jews and Muslims have been coming to faith in Christ despite their religion's instructions to reject Christ as Lord and Savior. Christian activity is routinely opposed by Islamists among the Palestinian Arab populations of the West Bank and Gaza, and occasionally opposed by ultra-Orthodox and other anti-missionary Jews in Israel proper. Despite this opposition, some churches include both Jews who have accepted Christ as the Messiah and Arabs who have left Islam and placed their faith in Jesus. Active ministry efforts among both groups involve Bible distribution, discipleship, evangelism, church planting, and theological education. The Palestinian Authority maintains some control over the West Bank under Israeli federal authority, while the militant Muslim group Hamas controls the Gaza Strip. Both groups are adamantly opposed to Christian activity and indoctrinate their populace to hate the West, Jews, and Christians. The two major religions in Israel are Judaism and Sunni Islam, with Christians composing a 2% minority. In Muslim regions, Christian converts face, from Islam face severe persecution from their families, society, Palestinian government authorities, and Hamas. In Jewish communities, Jews who follow Christ risk rejection, social pressure, and occasional violence from ultra-Orthodox Jews and organized anti-missionary groups. Christian converts from Islam in the West Bank and Gaza face violence at the hands of their family members and local governments, which are run by the Palestinian authorities. Christians in Israel often experience family rejection, low social standing, and limited hope of job advancement. Jewish anti-missionary groups uh, sometimes protest outside churches, cursing Christians and vandalizing their buildings. The anti-missionary activities have at times included violence against Christians. Bible societies operate in Israel, including the areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Christians have access to Bibles throughout the country, though they are dangerous for Christians or seekers to possess in Islamist-controlled areas. The Voice of the Martyrs support, supports frontline workers in key regions, supports training for local churches, and helps with Bible distributions. We also provide legal aid for Messianic Jews who are harassed or deprived of their legal rights. Pray for Messianic congregations that have been increasingly targeted by anti-missionary groups. Pray for Christian families in the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip who face continual pressure. Uh, especially pray now, yeah, now that there's, you know, war and violence breaking out again. Um, pray for Christian converts from Islam and Palestinian areas, especially those who've lost jobs. Pray for young believers from Orthodox Jewish backgrounds trying to restart their lives with little education. And pray for African congregations and other ethnic churches that face discrimination. Psalm 22 why have you forsaken me? Starting in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. 
You know, talking about types and typology, I felt like I wanted to share one of my more favorite uh, pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, right? He says, I'm a worm and not a man, right? Uh, the subject of Psalm 22. And a lot of us reading it will think, oh man, he's just saying that, you know, that no one likes him. And while he is saying that, the specific word for worm is not just worm. It's a specific kind called a tola, a toloth worm right? And there's so many ways that this thing pictures Jesus. The mother worm attaches herself to the wood of a tree or a fence. Jesus put himself on a wooden cross. Jesus willingly allowed the nails to be driven into his hands, right? The mother worm, when crushed, excretes a crimson scarlet dye that both covers the baby worm and stains or marks them. Jesus was also bruised or crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, right? Finally, just as the baby worm is dependent on the mother worm from the crimson dye to give it life and to mark it, a repentant sinner must depend on the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins to receive new life and to be marked as his own. So, the subject of Psalm 22 is saying, not just I'm some worm that's crushed by men, no, he's saying I'm specifically a Toloth worm that purposely and intentionally gives its life on a piece of wood to see its offspring live and come to life by feasting upon its sacrifice. So when he says, why have you forsaken me? He's not confused. He's very intentional. He's saying, look, I came to this piece of wood to be a sacrifice for those that would find life in you, God, and that work is done. How long am I gonna be on this piece of wood? How much more of this sacrificial work do I have to do? This is not a confused Psalm. This is a Psalm that's painting a picture of Jesus in his quote unquote weakest moment doing his strongest work for God. And now, back to the show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are going to be getting right into uh, Matthew uh, chapter 1. We are going to start in, obviously we're going to start in verse 1, but we're going to go down to uh, the end of verse 17, just kind of knock the genealogy out of the way. But there is a lot of typology in this genealogy, and there's a lot here for our own application, right? So without further ado, now let's jump into it. Oh, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, I would very much recommend that at least for this episode, you have a Bible with you. You would, uh, it'll be a lot easier for you to follow along uh, once I start dissecting some of the typological elements of these names, um, you know, as, as we go. Uh, cell phone users, you might be in a bit of an advantage here because you should be able to just... Uh, switch apps over to your Bible app while allowing uh, this podcast to play in the background, right? Like, let's, let's, uh, let's utilize technology here, yeah? Uh, but starting in, you know, Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Oh, and I'm, uh, I'm teaching out of the ESV, uh, just, uh, just so you know. Um, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why does, now? I mean, already uh, we're in a lot of things that are important here, right? Matthew identifies Jesus Christ as the son of David and the son of Abraham, right? 
Now, there are a lot more people in Jesus's family line, obviously, than just David and Abraham, as even the next uh, few verses indicate. So why does Matthew feel the need to lift out David and Abraham specifically before getting into the family tree of Jesus? He's doing it to identify Jesus as the king of promise, right? Because again, that Old Testament was uh, that Old Testament was always saying that, hey, God's going to send a savior. God's going to send a king to rule. Um, when he says son of David, right, that's a callback to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 12 uh, to 16. Hopefully, I should be able to get there uh, within a reasonable amount of time. Uh, let's see, let's say 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, starting in verse 12. This is what the text reads. This is God speaking, by the way. He says, this is God speaking to David, right? So David wanted to build uh, the temple of God. Um, God told him that he had other plans, basically. But, um, you know, to say it loosely, you know, God was... Uh, just uh, impressed, I guess, that uh, that David was thinking of uh, think thinking of him in that way, and so this is what God says to him. In verse twelve: When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Right, and so so far, just reading that, you're like, oh, well, that's Solomon, right? Like when David, when your days are fulfilled and, you know, when you're gone, I'll raise up from your offspring someone from your own body and I'll establish his kingdom. And God did that for Solomon, right? But if you keep reading, you'll, if you're going to be an honest reader of scripture, you're going to come to the realization, this is talking about, this can't just be Solomon, right? Like Solomon kind of fits this, you know, the same way that a shadow is kind of like the one casting it. Right. But you have to but you'd have to admit Solomon does not fit what comes next. Right. Um, God says he shall build a house for my name. Solomon did build the temple. Right. He did build a house for the name of God. But God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Whoa. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, when you read Solomon, right, that didn't happen with Solomon. Right. Solomon actually lost the kingdom. Right. Um, you know, so this this does not apply to him. Right. He had to, um, you know, he committed inequity and God disciplined him with the rod of men by the stripes of the sons of men. Uh, right. This is not Solomon. Solomon's throne was not established forever. Right. So this promise kind of leaves a hanging portion. Right. And the rest of the Old Testament would pick up on this. Right. That. God does intend some future descendant of David to sit physically on the throne of Israel, right? Forever. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, it says in Daniel, right? Um, also, Isaiah chapter 9 talks about the same thing, right? Just to, just to prove, right? Just to prove that this is not a one-time uh, prophecy uh, in the book of Samuel. No, Isaiah chapter 9. I'm just trying to flip there. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. 
says, for to us, another prophecy, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, right? So again, you see the Old Testament, multiple Old Testament books talking about a descendant of King David who will sit on his throne and have an everlasting kingdom, right? But more to the point, this person will be called Wonderful. He'll be called Counselor. He will be called Mighty God. Think about that. Why don't you think about that, right? The, the, if he's a descendant of King David, he's a human, right? Right? Because David can only produce humans, right? He's not producing cats. He's not producing dogs, right? He's producing human children, right? But the prophecy says that this human child of David will be called Mighty God, will be called Everlasting Father, will be called Prince of Peace, right? Which just makes you wonder, like, uh, this doesn't sound like just a man to me, right? Right? Like, like, what human would you call? Like, listener, what human being would you call Mighty God? What human being would you call Everlasting Father, right? None that you know. None that you know, but the Bible says that this descendant of David will be called that, right? And that's what Matthew, that's how Matthew opens up, right? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, right? Like this Jesus, this Jesus is the one that Isaiah said would be called mighty God. This Jesus is the one that Isaiah said would have the government on his shoulders. In other words, he's going to be the king, right? This person is the one that God talked about in uh, 2 Samuel when he said, yeah, I'm going to make his kingdom a forever kingdom, right? His kingdom, once started, will not come to an end, right? That's this person. But he also says he's the son of Abraham, right? And what promise is attached to Abraham? Well, if you come back uh, to the book of Genesis, right? Because again, Moses wrote about Jesus, right? So if we come back to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 12. Dang, I'm in 24. I got to come way back. Um, the book of Genesis, chapter 12, starting in verse 3. Yeah, starting in verse 3. Uh, this is what God says to him. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? God's saying to Abraham, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, how is that possible, right? When you look at Abraham's life, right, he definitely did bring blessing to uh, quite a few people in his life. Um, he definitely did bring blessing to his descendants, the Israelites, right? But you can't honestly say that Abraham's life on its own resulted in blessing for the entirety of the world, right? Right? Like, you can't honestly say that. Um, but you continue, right? You continue in that chapter down to verse 7. And then you get some clarification. 
Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Right? So now he says, you know, to your offspring I'll give this land. And later in the Bible, in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul points out, Hey, Abraham had many children, didn't he? Right? But the word that God uses for offspring is not plural. It's singular. Right? Abraham had many offspring, but only one offspring is who God has in mind when he's talking about this promise, right? Right? The actual word is seed, right? We translate offspring because it makes a bit more sense to us. We might we, we might be better off leaving a seed, right? Because what the Bible says is he doesn't say, I'm going to give this land to Abraham's seeds, right? All of his descendants, right? But to his one seed, singular, right? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, right? And that's also what Matthew is saying. Hey, that's Jesus, right? Jesus descends from Abraham, right? So in a sense, Jesus was in Abraham way back then, right? And so God said, and yeah, in you, Abraham, there is a descendant that will bring blessing to all the families of the earth, right? And I think 2,000 years after the life of Christ, seeing Christianity spread across the globe and continuing to spread across the globe, I think we can safely say, yeah, Jesus' life has brought blessing to the entire world, right? Every family on the earth. Well, we're moving in that direction anyway, that every family on the earth will have been blessed directly or indirectly by the life of this random quote-unquote, random Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, right? With no political power, no money, right? No social influence with the movers and shakers of the world, right? People ask me all the time, how come there aren't more Roman records of Jesus? My question back to them is, why would you expect, why would you expect the country of Rome to give two craps about a random Jewish carpenter from some backwater hood town, Nazareth. Why would you expect them to care more about writing about Jesus than Caesar? All right. The more interesting question is why is it that the name and legacy of this random Jewish carpenter, Jesus, has managed to outlive even the most powerful Caesar in Rome's history? That's the more interesting question. Right. But what Matthew is saying is, hey, this Jesus Christ, he is the promised king in the Davidic line of kings who will have a never ending kingdom. Right. This is the one that will be called mighty God. And he's also the one that God talked about to Abraham, who will bring who will bring blessing to the entire world. Right. That's a lot. That's a lot of meat in one verse. Right. Jesus is the king, son of David, of promise son of Abraham. Jesus is the king of promise. He is the promised king, right? Getting into some of these names now, right? Um, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And it's when we get to Judah that we have something interesting here, right? If we Again, if we come back to Genesis chapter 49, right? Remembering, right? Moses wrote about me, says Jesus. The entire Old Testament is thematically and actually about me, right? So we come back to Genesis chapter 49, and in Genesis chapter 49, we've got quite a lot of prophecies, right? 
one for each of the sons of Israel, right? That would go on to father the 12 tribes of Israel, right? One of those tribes was Judah, named after the guy Judah, you know, who go on to found that tribe, right? Genesis chapter 49, starting in verse 8. This is the prophecy concerning Judah and the tribe of Judah. Uh, Jacob says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him, right? And in a small way, this was fulfilled in the life of Judah, right? Right? The rest of Judah's kinsmen would praise him for, you know, his exploits, right? His hand would be on the neck of his enemies, right? Um, you know, Judah is a lion's cub, right? He's mighty, right? He was, right? But verse 10 is where you start to wonder, wait a second, is this really talking about just Judah? Verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Right? The prophecy being that uh, the ruling scepter will not leave Judah. What? You're telling me that Judah will always have kings? Yes. Right? And why is that? Because, lo and behold, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Right? So if Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, and if Jesus is the one that will receive an, a forever kingdom that will not end, then naturally the ruling scepter for all of time will never leave the tribe of Judah. Whoa. Now that's interesting, right? And all this stuff here, right, though true of Judah, is more true of Jesus, right? Right? Jesus' kinsmen will praise him, right? Right? There's plenty of Jews right now that are praising Jesus, and that number is growing, and it will continue to grow, right? Um, his hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, right? Yeah, yeah, Jesus wins. Jesus wins his battles, right? Um, Jesus is a lion's cub, you could say, right? Who dares rouse him? You want to fight Jesus? Give it a shot. And the scepter shall not depart from Jesus until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, right? All the families of the earth. Right? Now that's cool. Again, shadows and substance, right? You see how in the historical life of Judah, um, a shadow is painted, right? That Jesus thematically just kind of steps into and is like, yeah, that was true about you, Judah, but it's even more true about me. But it's even more true about me. And you could say that, Judah, your life, your existence was meant to paint a picture so that people would recognize me, Jesus, when I actually stepped on the scene. That's really interesting. That's really neat. Right? So we come back to Matthew 1, the genealogy, right? And um, you'll notice in verse 4, uh, and, well, actually, sorry, in verse 5, Rahab and Ruth are mentioned, right? Ruth is a Moabite, and Rahab, not an Israelite. She came from Jericho, right? They're both non-Jews, right? You can see even now in the family line of Jesus, right, people outside of the Jews are being brought in to the life and work of Jesus, right? Already 
that work of bringing in all the families of the earth is beginning. And it had begun in the Old Testament. And now that Jesus is here, we're going to bring it to its fulfillment. Um, and that is, that's really cool. Um, verses 6 through 11 in this chapter, um, you, get a, you get a long list of kings. Um, and like I said, you can look through it. But one thing to be noted about these kings in verses 6 through 11 is that they're mostly made up of kings that were called evil and judgment was brought on them. Don't get me wrong. They were Jews. They were kings over Israel or Judah. It's a long story. Um, but if you go back into the book of Kings, first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles, you'll see that most of these guys were horrible Kings, right? They were failures as Kings that, um, you know, that, uh, inspired the people of Israel to abandon the one true God and worship false gods and do all sorts of things, right? Some of these kings uh, reinstituted child sacrifice to uh, to false gods, to demons. Um, some of these kings engaged in, uh, in cruel slavery. Uh, like there's a lot of nonsense that happened with a lot of these kings. And yet... You know, and yet all these guys are, they're in the family line of Jesus. You want to talk about a broken family tree. How many of you can say that some of the worst leaders in the history of your nation are in your family line? Right? How many people, can you say that? Yes, no? Interesting. Yeah, probably not, right? Jesus knows what it's like to have a lot of oddballs and screw-ups and just straight-up evil people in your family line. He knows what that's like. Jesus came from that kind of dysfunction, right? Broken family or broken life. God can bring Jesus out of it if you look to him, if you trust in him, right? Verse 12, it says, after the deportation to Babylon, right? Now, the deportation of Babylon was the worst thing to ever happen to them as a nation, right? But God's plans didn't stop right? The family line continues even through the deportation, right? God promised to bring a king from the line of David that would sit on that throne forever and establish an eternal kingdom, a forever kingdom, right? And the deportation of Babylon only happened because of Israel's disobedience. It wasn't like a random bad thing that happened to them. They caused that bad thing to happen to them, and God still didn't abandon them, right? You think God's abandoned you? Despite, you know, because of all of the evil things that you've done in your life, and I will call them evil, I won't call them mistakes, you know your conscience is bothered by them because they're evil. They're actually wrong, right? But has God abandoned you, right? Has God washed his hands of you? Is he done with you? No, not if you don't want him to be done with you, right? If there's something in you that desires God, God's the one that's fanning the flame of that, right? So run to him, run to him, right? And this list of horrible, evil kings only highlights the need for a good and righteous king all the more, right? Israel, in their attempts to have kings that could produce the righteousness of God, all those kings failed. Even David would fail, right? Even David would fail. In, uh, in verse 6, it says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Whoa, by the wife of Uriah? Yeah, yeah. 
because David had a man assassinated so that he could take his wife. Right? Righteous David, righteous King David. A murderer and an adulterer. Right? And God didn't forget that, but God worked despite it to bring about Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world. Right? And I want to emphasize this here at, uh, well, actually, before we get to that, um, something I want to mention, right? Another parallel here, uh, running out of time. I do want to, I do want to mention this, um, in the first verse of Matthew, right? It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, right? There's a parallel even there. Remember how I said, remember how I said in my definition, um, for Christophany, right? It's not just seeing Jesus in the Bible or in the symbols, but it's also seeing Jesus in the literary styles, right? It's seeing Jesus even in the placement of the words, right? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, right? That's the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament. If you come back to Genesis, right? To Genesis chapter 5. Um, to Genesis chapter 5, you get a parallel uh, literary construction. Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Whoa, right? So you start the Bible with, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And what do you get in the Old Testament? Bunch of sin, bunch of failure. No one's living right. None of the kings can get it right. Then you come to Jesus, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and welcome to the righteous king, the savior of the world right? Right? Their shadow in that sense was their imperfection. Their imperfection painted a picture of the need for a righteous savior to come, right? But even cooler than that, when you look at the names that are in the genealogy in the family tree listed in Genesis 5, you get Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. What some of you might not know is that those names have meaning, right? Adam, man, Seth, appointed, Enosh, mortal, Canaan, sorrow, Mahalalel, the blessed God, Jared shall come down, Enoch, teaching, Methuselah, his death shall bring, Lamech, despairing, Noah, comfort and rest. And then one of Noah's three sons that's in the line of Jesus, Shem, his name means his name shall be famous. You tie those, you tie the meanings of those names together, and you get this man appointed mortal and sorrowful. But the blessed God shall come down teaching, his death shall bring the despairing comfort and rest, and his name shall be famous. You want to talk about the Old Testament talking about Jesus beforehand? That is amazing. That is amazing. And the same thing is true of Matthew's genealogy. You look at the names in Matthew, right? And the genealogy in Genesis is saying, yes, man failed. Man failed. Man sinned. They have, they're mortal now and they're sorrowful, but the blessed God shall come down and die to save them. And his name shall be famous because of it. In the book of Matthew, we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron, uh, Amram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, right? And on and on. And what does that mean, right? 
Stringing those name meanings together, we get the father of a multitude. He laughs at the deceiver and he shall be praised. Um, the breach, he repairs the breach, right? He will fortify it and enclose it and wall it in. He is exalted. The royal seed will battle the hissing enchanter. Wow. Wow, that, that is amazing. And coming to the end here, I want to emphasize the final three names in this genealogy, right? Jacob, Joseph, and then Jesus, right? For those of you that are despairing, for those of you that are hungry for what God has to offer you, I want to leave you with this last bit of Jesus's genealogy, right? Jacob, Joseph, and Jesus. In other words, to Jacob, he will Joseph improve Jesus. In other words, Jacob means heel grabber, right? A deceitful person. Joseph means life exchanged for death or death exchanged for life. And Jesus, Jesus's name means God's salvation or salvation of God, right? So in other words, to heel grabbing deceitful people, he will exchange death for life, your death for his life, and prove to you God's salvation. That is the message of the first 17 verses of Matthew, right? That Jesus, the King of promise, who will bring blessing to the entire world, right? By dying in their place has finally come. He's finally here, right? And this whole history of death, destruction, decay, dismay, and failure, God has somehow worked it into something amazing, right? And that all those, any person on this planet who's failed, who's sinned, any person who knows that they've got beef with God, any person that knows that they need God, right? <laughs> You're a Jacob, right? You're a heel grabber. You're a deceitful person. You're not a good dude. You've got sins that need to be uh, atoned for. Your conscience is bothered, right? The offer of Jesus is that I, the righteous king, will swap out your living death for my spiritual life, and I will prove to you that God will save you. Right? That is the story that we are about to dissect in the Gospel of Matthew, and it should be a really fun ride. It should be a really fun ride. Next time in Matthew, we'll finish out the begin we'll finish out the first chapter and push into the second chapter. All right. Should be good. Um hopefully, uh hopefully you enjoyed this. Uh hey, if you like this, subscribe to the pod. Uh, share it with anyone that you think would enjoy content like this. I do uh, peruse the other episodes, right? Um, I like to talk about uh, Christianity in places where Christianity is not liked because I think it uh, sharpens our soul. I think it calls us to greater and greater faithfulness and reliance on Jesus. And I like showing how the foreign life of King Jesus that he commands his people to live by is different than the world and is better than any other way of life that the world has to offer, right? And so that's what we do here on Foreign Saints, man. If you like it, like I said, please subscribe. Um, it was fun to do this. I look forward to doing more of it. Uh, until next time, man, go be Jesus to somebody, right? 
Christian, go be Jesus to somebody, right? Let them know about God's love. Let them know about God's forgiveness. Find tangible ways to serve your neighbor and cast all your cares and anxieties on God this week, right? Rest in the Savior, Jesus. Until then, go serve your king.